Alrighty, everyone. Welcome back. This is Tavis Killian and Scott McNear. Hey, everybody. Bringing you another episode of the Basin Breakdown. If you're new to this segment, we go back and revisit some of the largest news in the previous month for the most active basins in the United States. So this will be reviewing all of the news for April. Yeah, it's released in March, but we like to let a few good stories accumulate and then hit the big stuff. If you've been here before, welcome back. We hope you choose to subscribe to the podcast. Hit that follow button. We've got plenty of great content coming out all the time, but enough of that. We'll get straight to the content, starting off in Colorado with the DJ and Niobrara Basins. First story, Arapahoe County says no to a pause on drilling as commissioners vote down an oil and gas moratorium. The ban would have prevented Arapahoe County from considering any new requests for drilling permits from oil and gas companies until this fall. Discussion was sparked by a plan to drill 174 wells on a property just east of the Aurora City Line in the Aurora Reservoir. Although Denver-based Civitas Resources has laid out its project, known as Lowry Ranch, the company had not yet submitted any drilling permit applications. The vote was only narrowly passed with a 3-2 result, a decision at odds with the concerns of dozens of Aurora residents worried about the impact of energy extraction on their doorstep. And I did underline dozens here because in the comments of the article, that's what lots of people were pointing out. They said there's probably a good 400,000 people in that city, which it is just shy of. So a few dozen people showing up doesn't necessarily scream uh, anger from the majority, but I do see why they're concerned being uh, so close to a reservoir. I mean, I also think it could be a case of, uh, you know, city versus county uh, politics and mm. head to head with each other, Tavis. You, you know, the county is going to be getting a lot of the uh, revenue from from drilling outside of the city limits. And the people living in the city are either jumping on a bang, bandwagon, not in my backyard, or just don't want that kind of activity near their houses, which can be understandable. But at the same time, it's... Uh, it's a loss for the county if if it's if this were to pass the other direction. Carrying on with more regulatory news, the COGCC visits Glenwood Springs. During a public hearing last month in Glenwood Springs, the 2019 oil and gas regulation in Colorado that prohibits developers from constructing drilling and fracking operations within 2,000 feet of homes, schools, hospitals, and other buildings stoked public scrutiny. About 20 public comments were heard at a hearing hosted by the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission at the Hotel Colorado. The majority of these comments questioned whether or not Senate Bill 181 is actually fostering a healthier environment for Garfield County residents. Still, one resident touted the importance of energy security and emphasized just how clean American energy is. And this is, uh, again, another case, I think, Davis, of... Uh, certain parts of the state fighting with other parts of the state politically because the, you know, the Western slope, they're very energy proud, energy forward. Uh, a lot of development happens out there for Colorado. And um, that's not always seen the same way by the state legislature. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this was, Oh, well this one was drilled within 2000 feet of these four residences, which may have not been inhabited all year. And Oh, this one was within 600 meters of this stream. And, Sure, people are concerned, but it seemed like they really had to cherry-pick a bunch of things. I'm just happy that at least one person showed up to say, you know, something positive. And it seemed, I forget which, uh, I think it was Robbins, uh, Commissioner Robbins, that actually responded positively and thanked that person for stressing the importance of energy independence. But nonetheless, our last article for Colorado. Climate activists propose a Colorado ballot initiative to ban oil and gas drilling by 2030. 
After 2030, no new oil and gas well permits will be granted, according to a ballot initiative proposed by a coalition of environmental organizations and activists in Colorado. The coalition stated in a press release that it has submitted language to the Colorado Legislative Council for a ballot initiative to be placed on the 2024 general election ballot, quote, to rein in fracking in Colorado, end quote. The group is pushing this initiative because they believe Polis has failed to come through on his commitment to what he claimed would be bold climate action, as oil and gas extraction and combustion remains responsible for a majority of the state's emissions. And this is just the latest and I'm sure what's going to be decades-long stories of, you know, not so much state and cities fighting here, but what people call conservationists and others fighting over policy. So I don't think it's realistic. Well, okay, it is not realistic to stop all oil and gas development in the state by 2030, but I am interested to see how people vote on this, should it get included. Yeah, and I mean, that kind of puts Polis in a tough space because he's still got a decent amount of his backers that uh, don't want complete uh, oil and gas stoppage of development. Um, You know, people are, are, even if they are against the oil and gas space. They understand where some of the energy comes. At least I tend to hope so. And um, and if it does make it on the 2024 ballot, I, I have a hard time seeing a whole lot of any of the representatives in Colorado really getting behind it and endorsing it the same way that they did for, 181. for the 181 and some of the other energy-related bills that just restricted things rather than outright banned. Banned, yeah. I agree with that, but uh, that closes out the state there. Where are we headed next? Let's head to a little more friendly oil and gas state, Oklahoma. Hit up the scoop stack. It appears that a magnitude 4.0 earthquake was recorded in central Oklahoma. The U.S. Geological Survey reports that six tremors, including one with a magnitude of 4.0, shook central Oklahoma at the start of April. The Oklahoma Corporation Commission which oversees the state's oil and gas industry, is sending inspectors to look into 15 injection wells. Quote, we've identified the wells that may be suspect and we'll audit them, end quote. A spokesperson stated, referring to the volume of wastewater they inject and the pressure used to inject them. The commission has previously directed oil and gas producers to shut in some injection wells and reduce volumes in others to lessen the chance of earthquakes, but it looks like more action is still required. Well, you know, Tavis, it's... It's not new that Oklahoma gets these earthquakes, and uh, they're just going to have to do the audit, figure out where that's the epicenter of the earthquake originated from, and uh, you know make adjustments to the injection schedule from there. Yeah, I hope it's actually been narrowed down to one of these 15 injection wells, but I'm not super confident because this has been going on, like you said, for the better part of, well, over a decade now at this point. People have been talking about the relationship between our industry and tectonic activity. But for our next story, there are about 16,000 documented orphan wells in Oklahoma and a solution. Now, this is not anything new. We've talked about this a lot for many other basins, but Oklahoma lawmakers are taking charge and looking for unique solutions for resolving the ever-growing issue of orphaned wells. Oklahoma can make money from the cleanup process by utilizing the developing voluntary carbon market. In other words, Oklahoma can generate a stream of tax revenue and high-caliber jobs by encouraging businesses to invest in the reclamation of orphan wells. Senate Bill 852 was written by State Senators Dave Rader and Brad Bowles in recognition of the opportunity this presents for the state. If adopted, Oklahoma will take the lead in the nation in converting inherited wells into profitable ventures. If executed successfully, the bill will allow the cleanup of orphan wells without dipping into taxpayer funds. And I didn't read up on the specifics of how they do this, but I'm very excited to see if 
that works out because uh, the current setup in other states, say California, where they do have to use a lot of state money, a lot of taxpayer money to address these orphan wells, does not seem to be sustainable given that there's some half million estimated orphan wells across the country. So I think we're headed in the right direction. And if you can turn this into a business, it's only going to help everyone involved. Yeah, Tavis, it doesn't hurt to make abandonments profitable for everybody involved, including the state. So that's good. Moving to our last story in Scoop Stack area. Some new rules threaten Osage oil and gas production, Oklahoma senators and congressmen say. The Osage people are challenging new regulations that they feel will make the development of oil and other mineral resources much more difficult. The estate was created in accordance with a 1906 treaty whereby the Osages consented to the allotment of their reservation, which is now Osage County, and was acquired from the Cherokee Nation in 1872 to create the state of Oklahoma. Although each portion of the reservation's surface was given its own share, all mineral rights were still held collectively. At the time, there were 2,229 recognized tribal members, and each one received one share, or headright. Individual holdings frequently became fractionalized because the number of headrights is fixed while the Osage population has increased, and some headrights are no longer owned by tribal members. Since a large portion of Osage oil and gas production is currently small-scale, Tribal leadership is worried that some of the new regulations will drive up production costs to the point where marginal wells will have to be shut down. And I mean, this is tough, Davis. I mean, this kind of stuff is not uncommon on privately owned mineral rights as, you know, families get generation after generation. And, you know, that's where a lot of the land title work goes. But some of the records for that possibly weren't tracked as well as typical court filings for private stuff in Texas and elsewhere. So I don't know, I don't really know the best way to go forward on, uh, you know, making sure that the mineral rights are divvied up in the proper way and that it doesn't hurt everybody in the, in the food chain there. Yeah. It just kind of sucks that at the start, it, there was no forethought for the future and the fact that this population could grow or change or migrate. So I hope they are able to sort that out, and I hope that it doesn't come at the cost of just taking whatever regulations come their way and having to shut in a lot of their production, because I'm sure it brings in a lot of much-needed revenue. But that is all we've got for Oklahoma. Next up, California, where a court has thrown out the Berkeley, California ban on natural gas. Now, I believe this is a story we brought up a couple years ago, actually. It was introduced and developed since then, but... The nation's first ban on natural gas in new construction was reversed last month by a federal appeals court, siding with restaurant owners who claim Berkeley, California, violated federal energy standards when it passed the policy. According to a complaint filed by the California Restaurant Association, the regulation was unlawful under a federal statute that grants the American government the power to establish energy efficiency requirements for products like stoves, furnaces, and water heaters. According to Judge Bumate's ruling, the ordinance impacts the quantity of energy consumed, which is regulated by the federal government. So this is, I don't want to say a landmark case, but going to be a significant case moving forward because I think New York as a state was looking to implement a similar ban as it followed California's lead. So this, of course, was just a small local government ordinance, but if a state passes it, the feds could challenge it, but they might just ignore it, I suppose. I mean, I agree. This is a huge precedent that has been set from this this ruling because, I, yeah, it is either New York State or New York City, I believe, has passed this mm-hmm. same ban. And so 
if California gets it thrown out, then that just sets the stage for this to just drag on and on across every city in the nation that keeps putting this sort of ban on things. Which is unfortunate because already too much time and effort has gone into a seemingly insignificant problem, but who knows? That's just how it goes to have us. Um, <laughs> other uh, regulations in California, the state has passed its first in-nation emission rule for trains. The rule would expand the use of zero emissions technology to transport freight from ports and throughout rail yards and will restrict locomotive engines older than 23 years by 2030. Additionally, if a locomotive has an automated shutoff, it would be prohibited from idle time in the state exceeding 30 minutes. Some contend that the locomotive standards are premature. The law would be expensive for rail firms, according to Wayne Weingarten, a senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute, and higher expenditures would result in higher pricing for many items transported by train. The Environmental Protection Agency reports that in 2020, the transportation industry was responsible for the biggest portion of national greenhouse gas emissions. However, just 2% of those pollutants come from rail. And I mean... It seems like this is just uh, more of the same thing that California's been doing. Slap a 2030 due date on it, you know, make it make it so that the companies or the industries have to pass those costs along to the consumer. And that's just that just seems par for the course for the state. Yeah, that was there was a couple quotes in the article from people involved in the rail industry who were essentially just frustrated because one, they don't have access to appropriate technology and two, to get access to these sort of things to meet these goals, it would be very expensive. And like you said, somebody's got to pay for it. So the rail's going to operate and make some money. You better guarantee it. And I don't like the way that progresses. But our last article for California, Governor Gavin Newsom signs a watered-down oil profit penalty into law. During the past six months, Governor Newsom has engaged in a very visible campaign against the oil sector, accusing businesses of ripping off Californians as gas prices hit all-time highs in 2017 and have not gotten much better since. He has also called on lawmakers to confiscate the surplus profits and give them back to the taxpaying public. As he signed a first-in-the-nation bill that might result in a cap on oil refiners' earnings, he finally got to do his victory lap. Refiners operating in the state will closely monitor the developments of regulations under the law and whether the legislature pursues additional bills to address their lingering concerns before deciding whether to mount legal challenge, according to a representative for the oil industry, which vehemently opposes the governor's efforts. So essentially, industry is going to lay low for a bit, let a whole bunch of stuff come their way, and sounds like they're prepping to challenge it in court. But uh, the way I see it, their plate's already full, even from just a refinery standpoint. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I haven't read the law, Tavis. You know, but this seems to me like it just uh, it'll disincentivize refining, which at the end of the day will cause mean, the price to go higher, yeah, right? <laughs> lower, lower output and higher prices, supply and demand type of economics. But, but you can definitely guarantee that there's going to be some additional uh, court proceedings to try to challenge this ruling and, and this law. That pretty much wraps it up for California, Tavis. Let's uh, head across the nation to the Marcellus, where green groups sue to stop Ohio from leasing state parks for oil and gas drilling. Legislation that permits state parks to be leased for fracking and redefines the potent greenhouse gas methane as, quote, green energy, end quote, has been subject to a temporary injunction issued on April 6th in an effort to stop it. On April 7th, the law was supposed to take effect, but the court has not yet reacted to the injunction. 
The rule, which originally dealt with the maximum number of chicken chicks that could be sold at once, gradually expanded in breadth and size to benefit both the fossil fuel and the petrochemical sectors, as well as major players in the agriculture sector. The expansive law gives the fossil fuel industry free reign to frack Ohio's 75 extremely popular state parks. It also includes new restrictions for agriculture and electric utilities, as well as a ban on the sale of dyed chicks, bunnies, and ducklings. And I mean, this is just, <laughs> the term I think is pork-bellied. Yes. <laughs> it sounds like they're just adding stuff to to loophole their way into whatever. And and when when you do have that sort of legislation going on, it's probably for the best that an injunction's uh, put in place until it can be lined out properly. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I have no problem with developing federal or state, even lands, but uh, you got to do it the right way. You can't be sneaking it in because it's only going to cause more problems and more heartburn down the road. But hey, uh, I'm I'm happy for the bunnies. I don't have to be dyed anymore on Easter, so that's good, unless it gets rolled back. Next story. The board approves new air pollution standards for conventional oil and gas industry over objections. Over the objections of industry trade groups and Republicans who argued that the commission shouldn't have used an emergency approval to get new rules in place, the Independent Regulatory Review Commission approved new air pollution standards for the conventional oil and gas industry last month. The move comes as the state is racing to meet a deadline imposed by the federal government. Quote, clearly, the emergency rulemaking process was undertaken deliberately on the last day of the 21-22 legislative session to hamstring the General Assembly on our statutory obligation to review regulations. It is an abuse of the emergency rulemaking process, an emergency created not because the House Environment Committee exercised its prerogative, but because the Wolf Administration's management of the DEP allowed it to go six years, including two years since put on notice by EPA, to promulgate a rulemaking that complies with both the EPA requirements and Pennsylvania's own statutory standards. End quote, according to a letter submitted to the IRRC this week by Senator Gene Yaw of Lycoming, Republican, the chairman of the Senate Environmental Resources and Energy Committee, along with other Senate Republicans. And I included that quote because, hey, it sums it up well. It can't be a problem for six years only for someone to pretend as if they care by declaring an emergency order the day before. So it seems like we've got lots of regulatory issues between Ohio and Pennsylvania and I hope they can get that stuff sorted out between the dyed chicks and the emissions. Yeah, we can hope so, Dallas. And I, yeah, it's. I'd have to agree. It's a lot of uh, just dragging feet and trying to, trying to draw things out on both both ends of the spectrum. It looks like. That pretty much wraps it up for the Marcellus. I know it was a lot of a lot of regulatory stuff. Let's uh, let's head over to the Powder River Basin, where natural gas prices are tumbling and Wyoming coal hangs on. The two major coal companies in Wyoming, Arch Resources and Peabody Energy, both delivered strong first quarter profits in 2023, with Arch netting $198.1 million and Peabody netting $268.5 million. Nine of the top 15 coal mines in the U.S. are located in the prolific Powder River Basin. With gas prices tumbling to nearly $2 per MMBTU, Coal producers are worried about the immediate future of coal prices, which is competitive in power generation with natural gas when gas is at or above $3 per MMBTU. And it's not surprising that coal is still hanging around, Tavis, I don't think, especially when natural gas last year was up in the $6 range or so. And 
as things are falling, I mean, you just have to expect that it's going to swing the same way as natural gas because energy is going to just take the cheaper source. Mm-hmm. Next article, EOG Resources is recognized as the 2022 recipient of Game and Fish Industry Wildlife Stewardship Award. Now, we don't hear a lot of these stories often, so I wanted to incorporate it because it feels good. EOG Resources won the 2022 Industry Wildlife Stewardship Award, an award given to companies whose primary mission is not wildlife-related, but who choose to make a positive impact through development and improvement for the benefit of fish, wildlife, or habitat. EOG won this award for extraordinary efforts in reclaiming disturbed oil and gas sites, monitoring wildlife resources, and lessening their impacts on the environments. And, you know, this is the type of industry I want to be associated with, leaving a place as good, if not better, as when you got there, doing what you have to do and not bothering too many people while you do it. Yeah, and it's good to see this kind of uh, recognition being touted by the state to oil and gas producers. I know EOG has a large um, has a large acreage hold up in Wyoming, so the fact that they are, you know, doing what they should be doing anyway as a operator and you know making sure that the state can see the the difference in in the quality of work that they're doing to reclaim old wells and and other areas for oil and gas production is uh really really a positive on uh on the industry but it's a short month for the powder river basin now we move it on to the titan of the basins the permian where the permian has not yet seen peak oil production according to occidental ceo the EIA forecasted that the Permian Basin would be producing 5.62 million barrels of oil per day by the end of April 23. Occidental CEO Vicki Holub indicated that the increasing production from the Permian Basin would help to offset production declines from some of the other U.S. shale basins. Though, with slackening oil prices, the Permian is only expected to see daily production increases of 26,000 barrels per day from March to April, the smallest month-over-month production increase in six months. Pioneer's outgoing CEO, Scott Sheffield, indicated that he believed oil prices would go to $90 and $100 and hover there for the duration of the year. And, I mean, that that's a prediction we maintain here at Rare Petro, but as far as that smallest production increase in six months... It's to be expected. We saw that commodity price pull back, and now it's sort of oscillating between $68, $78 on a good day, and it's just to be expected. People aren't going to produce as much as they can when those commodity prices are low, when they think they see something better on the horizon. Yeah, there's that, Tavis, and then there's also still the the pinch of uh, labor in the industry across the board, just uh, you know, finding people to run the crews. That's going to that's going to slow down the rate that uh, development can happen. And uh, till the pinch point on labor and the cost of drilling and all of that kind of level out with commodity prices, you're not going to see as much production as you necessarily could. Um, our next article in the Permian, negative gas prices return to the Permian Basin as overlapping maintenance looms. Spot natural gas prices in West Texas re-entered negative values in mid-April. Kinder Morgan had compressor maintenance on its Gulf Coast Express Pipeline and on its Permian Highway Pipeline, both of which helped move gas out of the glutted Permian Basin. With weaker demand for gas due to oncoming summer weather, the energy crisis in Europe largely averted, and no new LNG export terminals coming online this year, natural gas has grim near-term future price prospects, which you know that's that's tough. I I know that the Waha Hub it takes away a lot of uh, 
a lot of gas from New Mexico and Delaware Basin, and and they've just been getting hammered this year with uh, low gas prices that are way below Henry Hub. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you would know better than I. I know when things go into negative prices, it doesn't mean that you know Kinder Morgan's going to pay you to hold your gas, but. There's a lot of gas to get rid of. Might they be doing that just to say, hold on to it, find it yourself, compress it, do whatever, we can't handle it, or is there just virtually no demand in an ocean of gas? I mean, it comes back to that associated gas problem, Tavis, that we were having back back in 2018, 2019. There, mm-hmm. you know, you can with the flaring regulations increasing and such, you can either you can either shut in or you can flare for, you know, emergencies or you can uh eat the eat the low gas price and potentially take a hickey on negative prices at the spot mm-hmm. um, just to get your oil sales out. And that's just what sometimes companies have to do to keep the revenue flowing. To build on top of that article, the EIA says that the Permian Basin is to hit record oil and gas production in May, which, you know, not so good for those gas producers. On April 17th, the EIA announced that the Permian Basin would rise to an all-time daily production record in May of 5.693 million barrels per day. The Permian superseded its pre-COVID production record late 2021 and continues to set all-time production records nearly every month. The Williston Basin, by contrast, saw its all-time production record in the latest months of 2019 and has not been able to recover to those levels. The Eagleford hit its peak in 2015 and never recovered from the crash that took place right about that time, so... Great to see growth in the Permian, but I know everyone there is waiting for some higher commodity prices, like you said, given the price of steel, parts, labor. It's hopefully coming soon. I would also argue I would also argue, Tavis, that the EIA forecast for the Permian Basin has not always been the most spot on. Just, this is true. <laughs> just saying from the previous article where they, they estimated it'd be at five point six two in April, and uh that was from December. So you know, the April forecast of 5.693, maybe it happens, but, you know, I, I don't know that I necessarily can assume that the EIA is going to hit that mark on the head with their projections because they haven't had a great track record so far. Our last article in the Permian, though, Tavis, relates to mergers and acquisitions. Is a buyout gusher coming in the Permian Basin? Why a takeover boom looms? With many large-cap firms possessing enormous quantities of cash and a desire to strengthen footprints and inventories in the Permian Basin, financial strategists like McKinsey are forecasting a slew of M&A activity in the Permian in the second half of 2023. Exxon was recently reported to have been in preliminary talks with Permian giant Pioneer Resources. Chevron remains committed to producing 1 million barrels per day from the Permian in the very near future, which could spur acquisitions. And ConocoPhillips has recently integrated Shell's and Concho's Permian acreage into its portfolio and may be on the hunt for more Permian acreage. And I don't see this necessarily being wrong, Tavis. Um, We've seen a lot of mergers in Texas in general. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, it seems like the Permian is heating up. People have been treading water, drilling through their inventory. And if their backers want growth, then they're going to have to gobble up somebody else. Yeah, I mean, that's what I want to say. I like I say, we can't be certain that this will happen, but I mean, through 2020, there's lots of uh, people who had money to spend and lots of people who needed to get rid of their assets. So those things meet up, there's a merger, there's an acquisition. So we'll just have to see. It's already kind of started. Maybe it picks up some more steam, but that's all we've got for the Permian. But we're going to keep it in Texas as we go over to the Eagleford, where we've got some more acquisitions from Japan. 
Japan's Mitsui Company has acquired 92% of Silver Hills Hawkville field acreage in South Texas. This acreage is very near LNG export terminals and ammonia plants provided higher spot prices and more constant demand for produced gas. Mitsui has also been actively promoting LNG terminals in the U.S. Gulf Coast region and may pursue something like Tellurian's natural gas production and LNG export model. And like I said, this is only the first of, well, not the first of a few Japanese acquisitions. So do you think they're looking just to secure a bit of their own gas resources to be able to export back home? I mean, the way that I could see it is, um, you know, they just want a baseline volume and be able to control the supply chain from start to finish. And that mm -hmm. way you don't get sidelined by volatility in the gas market because you can always have that base load, if you will, um, and then bring in extra stuff based on how the commodity moves. I don't know if that's necessarily their strategy, but that seems to make sense to me as mm -hmm. to why you might do something like that. Let's move on to drilling costs, Tavis where oil drillers have seen costs peaking in fields from Texas to Canada. Oil rig counts have been stable for a few weeks, and gas rigs have slightly decreased. Along with that, drilling costs have been stable, with steel prices even deflating slightly. Oil and gas firms are receiving some pressure from observers and investors to drill while costs are easing, supply and labor constraints are largely solved, and OPEC seems to inclined to cut production. Drillers in several major basins, including the Eagleford, have all expressed that drilling and completion costs are falling and have indicated a faith that oil and gas prices will not fall much further in the year. And I mean, I think that uh, from the pricing standpoint, I don't see how natural gas is going to get a whole lot lower um, for the rest of the year. At least I hope not. Yeah. And uh, hopefully oil, you know, has found a bottom as well. But, uh, you know, with the... Uh, Prices hopefully leveling out. Maybe we'll see at least uh, more stable activity and uh, potentially increase. An analysis I could not agree more with. And we move on to our last article for Eagleford and Texas as a whole. Eagleford Shale Region sees benefits and concerns. The Eagleford Shale stretches from Laredo to East Texas. Laredo's population has increased by a third since 2000, driven in some measure by the influx of capital and jobs brought about by the Eagleford Shale. Concerns have been raised about water in the area, and one energy advocate mentioned that each frack job now uses only 3 million gallons of water, down from the 5 million gallons per well that process required in 2010. New pipelines like the 140-mile Double Eagle Pipeline from Carnes to Mont Bellevue were raised as points of concern as well. And the, these are just natural problems that go with every boomtown, right? In the next decade following each Kaya and balance things out. But I didn't know that frack jobs were that much more efficient. Yeah, things have definitely gotten more efficient. Um, I don't know if it's, you know, the, the what they're pumping or, you know, changing from slick water back to gelled or something like that. But the other thing to consider is that we're definitely recycling a lot more frack water than we were in mm -hmm. 2010. I don't even know if anybody was doing it back then. Probably not. Um, but so that also is a, a benefit uh, as far as the water concern goes. And hopefully we continue to get better and more efficient at that recycled uh, recycled process. Well, that wraps it up for the Eagleford Tavis. Let's move up to the Williston and uh, hit our final basin. Where Aventive has announced a Williston Basin disposition. Oventum announced on April 2nd that it will be selling 46,000 net acres in the Bakken to Grayson Mill Bakken LLC, an NCAP company, for $825 million. The acreage produces 37,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day, 60% of which is liquids. 
The announcement was a footnote in a larger announcement where Oventiv is purchasing 65,000 net acres in Martin and Andrews counties in West Texas, acreage that is adjacent to their existing Permian Basin holdings. The Williston divestiture seems to be an effort to high-grade the Oventiv portfolio and to offset some of the expense of picking up the Permian acreage. And I mean, that's pretty standard stuff for a company this size to to divest some stuff that's a little bit further on the outside of their current holdings in the Bakken, bolt on some acreage closer to their prime stuff in the Permian and just reallocate their portfolio to better fit their investor mm-hmm. wishes. Is it strange that I'm surprised that uh, an end cap company picked it up? No, because, you know, the end cap's going to back whichever company is going to give them a return. And that yeah. could be in the Bakken, that could be in the Permian, that could be in Colorado. It's it's just uh, Grayson Mill must have been offset or wanted that acreage and has a good plan to, to develop or produce it. Yeah, good stuff. And now, our final article for not only this basin, but the podcast. Say you'll be there. Crude and gas reserves are in doubt. An investigation conducted by RB Energy concluded that the Bakken has just over 4 billion barrels of proved crude and condensate reserves left and about 120 trillion cubic feet of gas. At current drilling rates, the liquids reserves will last around 11 years and the gas reserves will last just under 10 years. The article continues to explain that there are plenty more hydrocarbon resources that will become proved reserves in coming years, but that Tier 1 acreage in many of the major U.S. basins is beginning to be exhausted particularly in the Bakken, and hey, that's that's just the way reserves go. Eventually, you think you're going to drain it all out. Someone comes along with a different process. I'm not too worried. I think technology will develop in 10 years' time, maybe not to the effect of the fracking boom we had, but I do see life in this field past 2030. Yeah, Tavis, I mean, they're going to they're gonna crack a nut on some new technology, like you said, or or find something. The the, the old adage is uh, the best place to find oil is in the oil fields. So, <laughs> you know, I think that even though tier one, what's on the books today may be that number, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the only the only amount of oil to deplete in that in that tier one acreage. There could be other ways to get additional um reserves that had been left behind uh out of the ground or a barrel becomes expensive enough that the proved reserve just expands yeah. to incorporate some other yeah stuff. you could also uh pull up some other tier one and a half tier twos <laughs> and make them into tier ones if price gets high enough but that is all we've got for this podcast we hope you enjoyed we try and grab a bunch of diverse things whether it's mergers and acquisitions policies technology whatever we got We try and bring as much to the table as we can because we do believe in learning and growing here. So if you want to continue that learning and growing, we've got more resources on our website, www.rarepetro.com. And you can always write to us if you have anything you want to hear about. I mean, we might even just do a special segment for you if you ask nicely. You can contact us at podcast at rarepetro.com. Other than that, stay patient. More great content on the way, both written and audio. It's even a video episode coming up pretty soon. So thanks again. This has been Tavis Killian and Scott McNear with Rare Petro. And until we see you next time, take care, everybody. Thanks for listening and have a great spring. Bye.